Galilee. God bless the reading of his word. Go ahead and be seated. Today's called Palm Sunday. And uh, the passage we just read is known as the triumphal entry. And thus began what is commonly referred to as Holy Week. The week between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. On Sunday, Jesus enters Jerusalem effectively for the last time, even though he would come out and go into the city a few times during the week. This was his last trip there. On Monday, the scripture tells us that Jesus clears the temple. He's had enough with the money changers, and he's already cleared the temple at least once, and so he goes in and he just kicks out, kicks out the thieves and the, the money changers and clears the temple. On Tuesday, there were numerous events that happened. He's in the temple, and the elders and the chief priests question his authority. And so he uses parables to, to confuse them and to confront them. Philip, one of the disciples, is approached by some Greeks, and they ask if it's possible to see Jesus. The Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 24 and 25, that happens on the Mount of Olives, where Jesus teaches these two chapters, happens on Tuesday. Judas made the agreement to betray Jesus on Tuesday. On Wednesday, the Gospels don't tell us much of anything that happened, and most scholars believe that Jesus likely spent Wednesday with his friends in Bethany, just a few miles outside of Jerusalem, Lazarus, Mary, Martha, others. On Thursday, again, numerous events take place. The Last Supper. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. The Garden of Gethsemane and the betrayal. Jesus is arrested on Friday. Numerous events take place. The trials between, before both Jewish and Roman authorities. He's denied by Simon Peter. He's mocked. He's scourged. And he's crucified. The title of today's sermon is TGIF. Thank God. It's Friday. We call this coming Friday what? What a strange name Good Friday is. You ever thought about that? How strange. Here's why. In the first century, do you think anybody would have called the events that happened that day good? I think they probably would have referred to it as Bad Friday unless they were uh, opposition to Jesus, uh, opponents of Jesus. But we call it good. In four and a half days, the crowd goes from Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, to crucify him and give us Barabbas. Hardly Good Friday. But, but the biggest problem of Good Friday is the cross. See, we love the miracles of Jesus. We love the teachings of Jesus. We, we love everything about him. But man, then the cross happens and it throws everything upside down. That, that's the biggest problem of Friday being good. And yet, Paul says in Galatians 6 verse 14 that we glory, we boast in the cross. We sing about the wondrous cross as we just sang a moment ago. It's hard to find anything good about that Friday unless you understand God's plan of redemption. Then you can call Friday Good Friday. Today we're going to look at, at the first century responses to the cross. Everybody fell into one of three categories. And then specifically, we're going to look at some individuals for some life application because here's why. Many of you are going to find yourself represented by one of those individuals that we point out. The first group. Some grieved that day. Obviously, there were folks who were upset. 
the disciples, the followers of Christ. In Luke 23, 26, we read these words. Now, as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. A great multitude of the, follow, of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. So on the way to Calvary, there's women crying. They're, they're weeping. Now, it only makes sense that if they're going to weep as he carries the crossbeam to, 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 to Calvary, certainly there's going to be more weeping and crying when they begin to nail the nails into his hands and into his feet. There were folks who grieved that day. There were a lot of folks who grieved that day, I believe. Folks who had who'd come to trust Jesus and love him and follow him. There's a painting called The Return from Calvary. I want to show it to you. Pictured there in the white is Mary. This, you see the, the despondency on her face. You can barely make it out, but in the hillside over in the top right corner, there are three crosses in the picture. I believe the despondency that is seen on Mary's face there would have been seen on all of the followers of Jesus. If there ever was a Black Friday, this was it. This Friday would have been Black Friday. How dark was Good Friday to the disciples? They had given up everything to follow Jesus. The, the uncertainty now, the confusion, because here he is dying on a cross and not the king that they had hoped he would be. The, the, the promised Messiah was now going to be buried. How dark was Good Friday for the women who followed along? I mean, one of the women was Mary Magdalene. She had been possessed by seven demons and had been living a life of prostitution. And Jesus set her free from both. There's Mary, the birth mother of Jesus, who, who gave birth to him and then nursed him and cleaned him and bathed him and watched him play and grow up. And now she sees him disfigured and brutally beaten and giving his life in front of her very eyes. How dark would that have been for her? You know, for some of you here today, even though even though Jesus rose from the dead, that's next week's story, it's still Friday for you. Because like the disciples, maybe you've experienced the death of somebody that you cared about recently, and so there's this sense of, of despair, this sense of emptiness, this sense of loneliness. Can I just remind you that in Christ, when we are in Christ, we will see them again. All right? Maybe it's Friday for you because, uh, like the disciples, you feel abandoned by God. Things in your life make you feel like God has forgotten all about you. Now, I remind you, he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. At those moments when you are treading water and you feel like the only thing that, abo that above water is your mouth and your nose so that you can breathe and you think you're doing all you can to stay afloat, can I just tell you that it's probably the only reason you're afloat is because the unseen hand of God is underneath you holding you up. You may feel alone, but you're not. For you, it may be Friday because the disciples were plagued with hopelessness. It was a dark world, and this is a dark world we live in, and everywhere you look, you get bad news and not good news, and, and so it's dark because you just have this hopeless feeling about you. Maybe it's Friday because you feel the weight of the world on your shoulders. Maybe it's a financial burden. Maybe it's a physical burden, but something is causing you to feel powerless. It may be Friday, but let me just remind you, Sunday's coming. Some grieved that day. Some were glad that day. I mean, let's just be honest. Some people were glad that day. Not everyone was upset that Jesus was dead and gone. The chief priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, even some of the Roman authorities, I believe, 
were glad that he was gone. Let me give you some examples. If you still have your Bible open, in Matthew 22, there's some examples because they constantly tried to trap Jesus. They tried to trick him, to give an answer that they could then use against him. But he was always smarter than they were. It begins in verse 15. There, there's some Herodians. Herodians were Greek Jews. They were uh, Greeks who had converted to Judaism. And they come to Jesus and they ask him a legal question. All right, verse 15. The Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in this talk, how they might trap him. They sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They butter him up. Can't you just hear it? The sarcasm. Now, we know you're a teacher of truth, and you, we know that you don't have, you're not a respecter of persons. Everybody's equal, and, and we appreciate that about you. And so we have this question for you. Is it legal to pay taxes or not? And depending on, they thought, depending on what answer he gave, they could trap him either way. Go down just a little bit further, and the Sadducees show up. They were the liberals of the day. See, the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in life after death. Okay, so, so, so they were the liberals, and they come and they ask Jesus a theological question. Verse 23, the same day the Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. It's a theological question. They think they can trap Jesus based on his answer. Now, we're not going through the answers, taking the time to go through the answers. But Jesus answered every one of these questions in a way that disarmed them. The next group is the Pharisees. They ask an ethical question in verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, te testing him, saying, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? We know God gave ten, but which one's the greatest? And again, they thought if he picked one over the other that they, they had him. There's one other question, though, and it's posed not by the Herodians or the Sadducees or the Pharisees, it's posed by Jesus. And he asked a personal question in verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Can I just tell you that that is a personal question that every single person in this room has to answer? You have to answer whose son is Jesus. Every man, woman, and child for all of eternity has had to answer that question. And depending on how you answer that question, your eternity hangs in the balance. Some grieved that day. Some were glad that day. See, I think the religious leaders, you know, they were always trying to trap him. They wanted to get rid of him. But I think even the Roman authorities wanted to get rid of him because even though Pilate's going to wash his hands, the last thing the Romans need was somebody coming up saying, I'm king of the Jews. Because the Jews were under their oppression and Last thing they need is somebody claiming to be their king, other than the puppet king they had installed. 
So some grieved, some were glad. There was one that gloated that day. I believe there was one that was gloated. Although we don't hear him speak in the text, and although we don't see him in the text, I personally believe that Satan was behind every event we've talked about. Personally, he was behind it. He was the one that put the thought in Judas's mind, hey, sell out Jesus. 30 pieces of silver would be worth it. Force his hand, see if he's the Messiah. I believe it was Satan who nudged the two false witnesses in the kangaroo court to testify against Jesus falsely. He was the one who was the force behind the voices that said, give us Barabbas. He was the one that was behind the, the power behind the voices that said, crucify Jesus. Although he's not seen and he's not heard, I believe he's strutting in the background. He's gloating that day as the Son of God is led to the cross. From the very time of the announcement of his birth, Satan's been trying to get rid of Jesus. He was the one behind Herod, killing all of the firstborns in Bethlehem, trying to, he, said, he told Herod, if you want to be king, you've got to kill the one that was born to be king. And then, when Jesus begins his ministry in Matthew 4, and he takes him out into, Satan is, meets him in the wilderness and tempts him with temptations, he's trying to do everything he can to disqualify Jesus to take away his authority, to bring his kingdom to an end, if you would. One time in Nazareth, Jesus was in his hometown, and he's worshiping, and he gets the people in Nazareth so riled up, they take Jesus, who they watched grow up, to a hillside, and they're going to throw him off the cliff. Satan was behind that, and Jesus walked through their midst and left. Just like Simon Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 7, Satan is a lion lying in wait. Seeking whom he may devour. In, 19, in John 19.30, when Jesus said, it is finished, I personally believe that all hell broke loose in hell. I believe they celebrated. <laughs> the king is dead. Long live the king. And they pointed to Satan. I, I believe that Satan was gloating. As they partied for a few days, he sat on his throne looking at his admirers. But as the great theologian Yogi Berra said, it ain't over till it's over. And it wasn't over yet. But that's next Sunday's message. All right? Let me summarize why that Friday would have been called Black Friday. The disciples, their faith this week, they didn't even want to be seen in public. They're hiding. The Roman soldiers took turns torturing and whipping and spitting and they crucified Jesus. Jesus is made to carry his cross through the streets where the scripture says many of those people spat on him and cursed him. He's stripped of his clothing. I know the pictures we see show that he has a loincloth, but friend, that's not how a crucifixion was done. They would strip you naked. He was stripped of his clothing, of his dignity, and he was hung there for all of humanity to see. Bad Friday. The Roman soldiers mocked him with the sign, said, King of the Jews. The, the sins of the world literally were weighing on Jesus that day. The father turned his back because he could not look on the son because he was bearing the sins of the world. And it caused Jesus to say, my God, why have you forsaken me? Darkness covered the land as the prince of darkness believed he had killed the son of God. Jesus was taken from the cross and placed into a borrowed tomb and buried. Hardly. Good Friday. Now, let's spend some life application here. Let's talk about some of the folks who were there individually. Because, again, I think you're going to find, many of you will find yourself in these individuals. 
The first individual is the Roman centurion. He was moving from doubt to faith. The Roman centurion. Now, by his title, a centurion, it means he would have had a century, a hundred soldiers underneath his authority. And the fact that he's present at the crucifixion tells us that it was his soldiers, it would have been those assigned to him who did the mocking and the scourging and the beating and the crucifying of Jesus. The fact that he's there overseeing it tells us that. Matthew 27, verse 27, we read these words. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Not a pretty picture. As a centurion, this, this Roman centurion would have been brutally, sadistically efficient. This wasn't the first crucifixion he had presided over, wouldn't be the last. He had probably presided over hundreds of them. He had seen them come and he had seen them go. He had seen death. He knew that his men were instruments of death and so he had become hardened to it all. Up to now, do you think he gave any thought to the fact that Jesus might really be the Son of God? I don't think he did. It was his soldiers who took Jesus and crucified him. It was his soldiers who gambled for the clothes of Jesus. It was his soldiers who mocked him. It's a scene of great cruelty. Here's what I think the centurion expected. I think he expected to hear cursing coming from the cross. The, the, hated, Jew, the, the hated Romans were doing this to the Jews, and, and I think he'd grown accustomed to hearing those who were being crucified to curse them and to tell them that, as Flip Wilson used to say, God's going to get you for that. You know, that's what he expected. As he sits there underneath the cross, he's, he hears firsthand the words of Jesus. And instead of cursing, he hears Jesus as Jesus prays for the, his men who have crucified him. He hears Jesus on the cross say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He's never heard anything like that before. How, how, can, how can this be? It says when the centurion opposite him, stood opposite him, saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, said, truly, this man was a son of God. He woke up that Friday a doubter. Son of God? A Jew? Are you serious? But he moved because of what happened that Friday from doubt into faith this man is the son of god life application number two was the thief moving from sinner to saint the thief was caught again the scripture tells us they were thieves and listen being a thief wasn't a capital crime unless you were a habitual thief if you had been arrested time and time and time again yeah you got the death penalty for that and so this thief was a habitual criminal both thieves on either side of him would have been guilty of the same thing, being caught time and time and time again. Now that seemed harsh, but the thief we're talking about doesn't argue that that's a harsh penalty. In fact, what he does is he defends Jesus. It's interesting. Luke 23, 39. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, kind of making fun here, if you're really the Christ, save yourself and us. 
But the other thief, answering him, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you're under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man's done nothing wrong. Now get your mind around this. Jesus has been in two trials in front of the the, the Jews, where he has two false witnesses accuse him. He's been in front of Pilate, where they're calling for his head, and not one of his disciples defend him. There's no scriptural evidence. Now, we know Peter tried to defend him in the garden, but then, but then he later denies him. And at his trials, nobody defends him. And now, all of a sudden, of the least likely place, a thief on a cross witnesses of who Jesus really is. He says, he's done nothing wrong. We, we're, he's, he looks at the other guy. He says, you know what? I'm guilty, and so are you. But he's done nothing wrong. Scripture tells us he looks at Jesus and he says, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus responds by saying, truly today you'll be with me in paradise. Here's how he moved from sinner to saint. He said, I'm guilty and Jesus is not. Some of you today, you walked in here a sinner. You've never really trusted Christ to be your savior. But you can walk out of here a saint. All you have to do is say, I'm guilty. I'm guilty of sin and there's there's nothing I can do to save myself. But Jesus can save me. Life application number three. John was moving from friend to family. John had given up everything to follow Jesus. Jesus. Gave up his business, abandoned his family, if you would, left them there at the Sea of Galilee, just so that he could spend three years following Jesus. He's a loyal follower. In fact, he often referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved in his gospel. And, And it's obvious that John and Jesus had this very special relationship. Scripture tells us that he's there at the cross and standing by him is Mary, the birth mother of Jesus. Joseph's not mentioned in the text, and so Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, the one who raised him, has likely died. And because of that, the law required that the firstborn child, which would be Jesus, would take care of his mother, who was a widow. But here Jesus is going to die before his mom, so the responsibility would fall to the second in line. But John chapter 7 is very clear that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. They didn't believe in him. And so Jesus isn't going to trust Mary to one of them. He's going to move John from friend to family. John 19, 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. Jesus said, John, you're no longer a friend. You're family. Take care of mama. Could it be that you are like John? You you put your faith in Jesus a long time ago. You became a friend of Jesus, but you've never really connected to the family of Jesus. The family of Jesus is the church, the family of God. I shared with you, and I shared with the first service, and I'll share with you that 
you know, you, you often have your closest relationships. I don't know about you, but I do in the, inside the family of God. Now, I'm not just referring to my parents who happen to be members of this church, but, but many of you, I, am, I have a closer relationship to you than I do my own birth brother and sister. Why? Because you're family. You're family. We're part of the family of God together. And for some of you today, you need to move from being a friend and you need to connect to the family, the church, and be a part of what God is doing. You've been coming, and so why not just officially join and make that jump from friend to family? Christians were not meant to live alone. Life application number four, there's a bystander who moves from spectator to servant. In Matthew 27, Jesus cries out that he thirsts, and he says the Father has forsaken him. And I want you to see what verses 47 and 48 say. Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink. As a pastor, I just love it when people see a need and try to meet it without being asked. That just gets me excited. Here is a nameless, faceless bystander. We don't know who he is. Don't even know it's a he, I don't think. I don't think it's said. But whoever this is sees that Jesus is thirsty and takes a sponge and sour wines, the only thing able to offer him and tries to meet his need. He moved from being a bystander, from being from being a spectator to now being a servant of Jesus. And some of you, you come here week after week and you are spectators, and, and today the call to you is move from being a spectator to being a servant, to, to being one who would serve the Lord in whatever way that you can. That Friday calls us to action. There's no longer the time to be bystanders. Life application number five, Joseph. A man named Joseph is moving from secrecy to boldness. Scripture tells us his name is Joseph of Arimathea. Mark 15, 43 says he is a prominent member of the council. Those are the words. Prominent member of the council. What's that mean? That means he's, he's one of the top dogs in the Jewish community. The Sanhedrin, the, the council, the, 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 the group of guys who made all the decisions, the ones who are coming after Jesus, this Joseph of Arimathea is one of them. And yet, he's a believer in Jesus. But he's not let it be known yet because he fears. It, politically, it's incorrect, and he knows that he might lose his position and his power if he comes out of the closet, so to speak, and acknowledges Jesus. But that Friday, everything changed. John 19, 38. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took the body of Jesus. Now get your mind around this. Jesus has died on the cross. He's still hanging there. Pilate has to find out if he's really dead. And Joseph of Arimathea comes, and he's been secretly a follower of Jesus. And now in front of God and everybody, he says, Pilate, can I have his body? Pilate grants it, and they take down the body. And he washes it as best he can. The Scripture tells us he wraps it in white linen and lays the body of our Lord in his own tomb. He's no longer a secret follower. He's now out. He's bold. Could it be that because of what happened that Friday, 
Some of you have been secret about your following of the Lord Jesus Christ at school or at work or wherever, but could it be that God is moving you to, to move from secrecy to boldness to where you publicly say, this is who I believe in and here's why I believe in him. Maybe that's the decision you need to make based on what happened on that Friday. Life application number six, and I'm done. Nicodemus is moving from spiritual infancy to maturity. Nicodemus' story begins in John chapter 3. You, you probably know the story. He's also one of the council. He's one of the, he's one of the guys, and he comes to Jesus at night. He comes at night. Why? Because he doesn't want anybody else to know he's coming. And uh, he, he butters him up. You know, hey, we know your teacher come from God because nobody can do the things that, that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus looks at him. I think it's John chapter 3, verse 3, and he says, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Nicodemus doesn't get it. He's like, born again? What are you talking about? Can a man enter his mother's womb a second time? I don't get it. He's a spiritual infant. He doesn't understand. He wants to believe in Jesus, but he has no clue what it means to be a follower of Christ. Then you go just a few chapters farther in John chapter 7, and the Pharisees are wanting to, to poo-poo the teachings of Jesus. They're wanting to, to just set it all aside and say, what's well, not true? And Nicodemus says, hey, hold on. Now, I'm paraphrasing here, but, but he begins to say, you know, we shouldn't so quickly dismiss everything that this man is saying. He's moved from spiritual infancy to, to a little bit of growth to where he's, you know, kind of like, yeah, let's, let's think about this. Let's, let's not be quick to dismiss him. You know, growing up is hard, isn't it? Physically, it's a hard thing to do. Spiritually, it's a hard thing to do. It's not easy. To grow from spiritual infancy to maturity. The Apostle Paul knew this in 1 Corinthians 13. He said, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought as a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. The closer we get to Christ, the more we see what really matters. I told you in John 19, 38, Joseph of Arimathea comes to get the body. Here's verse 39. And Nicodemus who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. A benchmark of spiritual maturity is self-sacrifice. That's a benchmark of spiritual maturity, self-sacrifice. The scripture doesn't tell us, but I personally believe those 100 pounds of herbs and aloes... Nicodemus was preparing for his own impending death at some point, and he had set that aside for his family to take care of him when he died. And now with the death of Jesus, he gives all that he has, sacrifices all that he has to acknowledge that Jesus gets it all. Jesus, it's all about him is what Nicodemus is saying. gives his best for the Savior, and I believe he risked his power and his position as part of the council to do so. That Friday, he moved past infancy to spiritual maturity. Maybe today, the next step for you is, to, is God is stretching you out of your comfort zone. Maybe you're not necessarily an infant, but you're not as far along the timeline of progression that God would have you to be, and he wants you to move more and more towards maturity to where you are bearing the spiritual fruit that are spelled out in Galatians chapter 5, where you are worshiping on a regular basis. Maybe for you, the mark of maturity is getting plugged into a small group where they hold you accountable, where they teach God's word, and where they pray for one another, and you pray for them, and, and they know when you're out. Maybe for you it's being a part of the church or committing to an act of service, but something is 
God is calling you out of your comfort zone to, to maturity. What changes? What changes because of Good Friday? And it was good. Is God calling you to make? Let's pray. Father, I believe that your Holy Spirit has spoken to us about things in our life that need to be different. And I pray now that we would, that, that we would obey. I pray as I prayed in the beginning that our obedience would be pleasing in your sight, that your Holy Spirit, having spoken to us about how you would have us respond to the preaching of the gospel, that we would do so now, that you would be honored in Jesus' name. Amen.